This is a Federal News Network podcast. Deliberately bad advice can help a veteran get pension benefits out of the Veterans Affairs Department. Sometimes the advisors take the money for themselves. Eventually, the veteran will be forced to pay it all back. It's called pension poaching, and it's a growing problem. For how the department is trying to stop it, we turn to the VA's chief financial officer, Charles Tapp. Mr. Tapp, good to have you back. Thanks again for having me on this morning. It's always a pleasure to spend some time with you and certainly uh, speaking about important topics for our veterans. All right. So pension poaching, how do these schemes actually work here? Well, as you know, fraud is increasing on a global scale and, and it's changing the way businesses and individuals have to protect themselves. And pension poaching is pretty much a financial scam that targets veterans, survivors, and their families who are potentially eligible for VA benefits. This popular scam occurs when unethical advisors try to artificially qualify VA pensioners or potential pensioners to get pensions um, by, you know, hiding their money via trusts or hiding their money in annuities. And the unfortunate thing is once VA reviews those applications or does reevaluations on an annual basis and we determine that a pensioner was not actually eligible, unfortunately, sometimes those veterans have to repay those funds. Right. Almost similar to Medicaid, you have a look back period also. In this case, it's three years. Absolutely. So generally speaking, when we qualify someone, we do a look back of three years. And then obviously on an annual basis, when we revisit the financial condition of a pensioner, we're also looking back at their federal tax information to make sure they maintain their qualification for this important benefit. Well, unless the pension payments can get diverted to the advisor, what is the incentive for these advisors to mislead veterans in that manner? Well, unfortunately, when they're working with uh, veterans, what they do is they charge a fee up front for setting up an annuity or setting up a trust. And those fees, again, goes to those unscrupulous actors. The other thing that can happen also in a pension poaching situation is where you may have family members who ask the beneficiaries to deposit their benefits into their account versus the veteran account. Those are two scenarios, certainly, where our veterans and sometimes our elderly veterans are being taken advantage of. Are there any clues? I mean, what methodology do you have to be able to suspect when someone is applying in this manner that this doesn't look right? Well, unfortunately, there's not a lot of clues on the front end. Uh, Usually we find them in arrears uh, once we're doing our investigation or inquiries. So the unfortunate thing is that if veterans aren't aware and they're not educated on the front end, sometimes the challenge is we're, we're catching them after the unfortunate act has already occurred. Because if someone has an application in for a pension, but the funds are requested not in their name to go somewhere else, would that maybe trigger an automatic investigation? Well, a lot of times with the the bank accounts and the information that we receive, we get a routing number and a bank account number submitted by the veteran. So generally, the veteran is in charge of what information they provide us. So again, if they've been convinced by a family member or a third party to deposit their benefits in their accounts. Unfortunately, that's a choice that the veterans have made, but sometimes that may result in them not receiving the benefits that they truly have earned. Is there a way to, say, pause an application so that you can get a message, maybe do this routinely for everybody and say, we see you're applying for pension benefits, just keep these rules in mind and then proceed or something in that way, kind of a pause in the middle? So what we do is actually we try to educate our veterans as well as our veteran service organizations and their accredited powers of attorney on what to look out for. We always share with our veterans, never fill out forms and pre-sign them before information is input so that you absolutely know what you're signing. We also emphasize the fact that you should work with an accredited VSO. 
and those accredited VSOs, you can absolutely find out who those are uh, using the VA.gov site and in our search engine, typing in accredited representatives. And we will provide a list of VSOs and attorneys that have been vetted through the VA. We also make sure that folks understand that they don't allow their benefits to be deposited in someone else's account to make sure it comes to your account. And then obviously, if you need to make transfers or other financial transactions, that you maintain the control of that as a veteran. Because it's very important, again, for your overall financial safety. We're speaking with Charles Tapp. He's chief financial officer of the Veterans Affairs Department. And any idea how much pension poaching costs VA every year? So right now, we have close to 300,000 veterans and survivors who are in receipt of some type of pension. And right now, the number of fraud cases is less than 1%, and the amount of money that's defrauded is less than $100,000. But we found, just like when we process claims, that every veteran is more than just a claim number. They're an individual. So for each veteran or survivor that's defrauded, we take that very personally. So while the numbers aren't gaudy, for those veterans who are defrauded, it means the world to them. So we want to make sure that we're taking all the actions that we can to protect those who have served our country and served them well. And you want to point out, too, also to veterans that if they are caught, even unwittingly and misled by some of these scammers, nevertheless, they're the ones that have to pay back the pension money they've received. Yes. Unfortunately, again, when when benefits are filed, they're filed certainly in the name of the veteran or the survivor. So if there's an issue in terms of eligibility, unfortunately, that does come back to the beneficiary and they would be the ones who would be held responsible in terms of returning funding back to the federal government in instances where they were not deemed to be eligible. And just to reiterate, there is a way that someone can vet a service provider or an advice giver through third party means. Absolutely. So again, if they go to va.gov and in our search engine at the top right-hand corner of the website, if they type in accredited representative, we can absolutely confirm that those folks are accredited. Or if they have challenges in working with our website, you can always call the National Call Center at 1-800-827-1000. And you can certainly ask those same questions. And we can certainly walk veterans through that process to make sure they are certainly working with someone who's accredited, and someone, again, who's been vetted through uh, the VA's Office of General Counsel. All right. Well, we'll help you get the word out here through this very broadcast. And while we have you, just a couple of CFO questions. How are you doing with the compressed fiscal year, which is about half of the normal length of the fiscal year? How are things going? And that must put special pressures on the CFO and the accounting staff just to make sure everything stays kosher in that compressed Absolutely. period you have. <laughs> no, thanks for that question. No, the secretary has been very clear about the importance of receiving a full year budget. And we are so grateful for the partnership and support from Congress and the president for ensuring that we did get a 22 budget. And while the timetable is somewhat truncated, uh, we were postured and ready to move forward so we could actually move forward and spend responsibly in our responsibilities so that we could continue to deliver benefits and services to veterans. So again, while the schedule is short, we've got our sleeves rolled up and we're postured to make good fiscal choices on behalf of veterans and those that we serve. And what kind of preparations do you need to make in general for a new fiscal year coming, especially in this case, the president has proposed a pretty good budget increase for VA for 2023, nowhere near enacted yet, let alone funds dispersed. But should that potential come to pass, how do you get ready for that? 
each year, what we do is we're making sure that we're in constant communication with our stakeholders. We're engaged with discussions with our veteran service organizations, members of Congress, and veterans themselves to understand what are their expectations of VA and VBA specifically. And as we looked at the 23 budget, our key focus point was making sure, number one, we had enough resources that we could continue to process the three Gulf War presumptives that the secretary approved last summer, and that's asthma, rhinitis, and cyanitis. So we made sure we had the FTE to continue to process those claims, both timely and of high quality. Number two, our budget request is also focused on automation. We recognize that as we continue to have new presumptives, that automation may provide us another tool so that we can process claims more quickly. So again, that veterans don't have to wait longer. So we're very focused in those particular areas. And then last but certainly not least, we also have some additional FTE that we've requested. Because again, as we continue to educate veterans more through our TAP program and through other educational mediums, we get more claims. And we don't want veterans waiting longer to get the benefits that they've earned and deserve. So we ask for additional FTEs so we can process those both timely and accurately. So again, our veterans receive their benefits and services without having an extended wait. Charles Tapp is Chief Financial Officer of the Veterans Affairs Department. As always, thanks so much. Thank you for having me again. It's always a pleasure. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are 
sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.